This is a disclaimer. This episode is slightly more violent than usual. Check out the discussion post at mythpodcast.com for more information. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of Alibaba. You'll see you probably should have read the fine print when your promotion at work takes you from hospitality to helping your boss bury dead bodies in the desert. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see why it's a great idea to shriek at strangers in the grocery store. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 33, Inheritance. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week, it's a story you might have heard. It's known worldwide. I heard a few variations of the Alibaba story growing up. My favorite being, of course, the Wishbone one. But those were almost nothing like the original. The original is, unsurprisingly, much more violent, but it has some really good characterizations. It was part of that famous compendium of Middle Eastern and South Asian folk tales called 1001 Nights. The original Aladdin tale came from that one as well. Both the Alibaba and Aladdin stories were added by the same French translator in the early 1700s, but the story is set in medieval Persia in an Islamic society somewhere between the 8th and 13th century. Alibaba's arms burned as he hung from a tree. From here, he could clearly see the men riding, kicking up the dust cloud in the distance. It was as he thought. They were thieves. He would miss the little donkey he had left in the middle of the road, laden with the wood he had cut that day. When he saw the cloud approaching, Alibaba knew he needed to get off the road. So he clambered up the cliff face to a tree that was growing out of the cliff. He strained and pulled himself up until he was concealed by the tree's leaves. And not a moment too soon, the thieves crested the hill nearby, and Alibaba guessed that there had to be over 30 of them. His donkey shrieked and ran off when he saw the men on horseback galloping towards him. Alibaba was alternately relieved and scared because it became obvious that the thieves didn't see him in the tree just above them. It also became obvious that they were stopping right below Alibaba. Alibaba hugged the bark closely and tried not to breathe. He could hear them and soon he couldn't keep himself from peeking through the leaves. They were thieves all right and the large sacks of gold were an almost stereotypical giveaway. Alibaba wondered why they were unloading their horses here, in the middle of nowhere. But he soon learned why. The leader walked along and tapped the cliff face with his sword until he was satisfied with the sound. The leader of the thieves stood before the cliff and said two words, open sesame. Sesame, Alibaba thought, like the seed. That oddity was quickly replaced by an even bigger, more unexplainable oddity when a portion of the cliff face sunk in and was drawn upward, magically revealing a passageway into the mountain. Alibaba's jaw dropped onto the rough bark. As a quick aside, there's no explanation given as to how this cave got there, or why the phrase is open sesame. It's not because it sounds like sesame in English, like open sesame. That's what I thought when I was younger. The original Arabic is the word meaning sesame, like the seed or the grain. When it comes to stuff like that, magical cliff faces that thieves know about for no reason whatsoever. Let's just borrow a line from The Simpsons and say that a wizard did it. 
Alibaba watched the thieves lug bag after bag of gold into the hideout. As it turned out, there were 40 thieves in all. He saw all of them go into the hideout, and the rock wall closed behind them. Alibaba briefly thought about jumping down and running off, but decided against it. It was better to wait for them to leave, if they left. But he found that it was only a few minutes before the 40 thieves exited the hideout without their bags of gold. The men chatted as they mounted their horses and rode back in the direction they came. Soon, they were once again merely a cloud of dust on the horizon. Looking back at this day, Alibaba might say that he hesitated and thought about the implications of opening up the magic door and entering the thieves' hideout. He didn't hesitate though, and as soon as he found the spot, he said, open sesame, and the door opened. He expected a dark and dank cave, but was shocked by what he saw. It was lit by openings in the rock far above him, and Alibaba found a spacious cavern that was almost overflowing with riches. There was a narrow path that wound its way up, and along the path there were bags of gold, jewels, rich silks, rugs, everything. Too many for one robber band to acquire in their lifetime. This must have been used by generations of thieves, and he passed this every single day when he went to go cut wood. Just two bags of gold would be more than enough for Alibaba to live comfortably for the rest of his life. And so he went for two of the ones that had just been placed in the room and dragged them outside. On his way, he was surprised to see that the door had closed. But he remembered the phrase and opened it again. Looking out along the road, he was pleasantly surprised to see his little donkey wandering along. Alibaba dragged the gold out, said, close sesame, as he had heard the thieves say, and ran to catch his little donkey. The little donkey, grateful at first that his master had found him, and he didn't need to resort to the life of a wayward donkey vagabond, quickly reconsidered when Alibaba pulled the wood off of him, piled the heavy gold on his back, and then piled more wood on to cover the gold. His little donkey legs shook under the weight as he walked back home. Alibaba's wife was standing outside when she saw the little donkey straining under the enormous weight. A good day, I see, she said, smiling to her husband, seeing only the wood piled on the donkey. You have no idea, he said to his wife, and pulled her inside. After Alibaba explained the whole day to her, they brought the donkey around back and unloaded it without any of the neighbors seeing. Pouring the bags of gold out on the floor, they danced around the pile, rejoicing. It had been tough since Alibaba's father had died suddenly a few years ago. The father was a merchant on the rise, but his career was cut tragically short by an illness. His two sons, Alibaba and his older brother Kasim, received a meager inheritance, and they found they had to start their own lives outside of their father's home much sooner than they expected. Kasim immediately married a wealthy woman, on the basis of her being a wealthy woman, and became well-to-do. Alibaba tried to follow in his father's footsteps, but he didn't have the skill or experience and lost most of his inheritance. He became a woodcutter, and though he enjoyed the hard, honest work in the forest, it was becoming more and more difficult the older he got. He married a woman almost as poor as him, and despite their conditions, they were happy. They talked about counting the pile, but it would take forever. It almost filled their little house. They didn't have vaults or really any extra storage space. This afternoon, before their son returned, Alibaba would dig a hole in their floor, and they would put the gold in there. 
The wife snapped her finger. She knew where she could get a scale. Alibaba's brother lived nearby, and he would have a scale they could use. She went, but ran into her sister-in-law. Oh, I thought you and Alibaba were, what's a delicate way to put this, so poor that you're both starving in your dirt hut. The woodcutting thing must be really taking off for him. Good for you, good for both of you, Kasem's wife said, very subtly. Alibaba's wife didn't care. She knew the piles of gold she had at home. Yeah, things are rough. We uh just got some grain we wanted to measure. Mind if we borrow your scale for a couple of hours? Enough grain to measure? Kasem's wife, who presumably had nothing better going on, had to know everything about her sister-in-law. She smiled the fakest smile possible and ducked inside for a long moment. This 10th century mean girl had to know what type of grain it was, so she stuck a small, pliable bit of wax at the bottom of one of the containers. It would catch a bit of grain if it was pressed on it. Alibaba's wife thanked Kasem's wife and rushed home. Alibaba dug and his wife measured the gold. At the end of it, they dumped all the gold in the hole and covered it with only a small layer of dirt. They pulled a rug over it and their very rudimentary bank was hidden. Alibaba asked if the scale was empty and his wife turned it over. Yep, nothing left in here. She left and dropped it off with Kasem's wife. As soon as she shut the door, Kasem's wife found that it wasn't a grain of rice stuck to the scale, but a small gold coin. She gasped and ran to Kasem's shop. She slammed the gold down on the counter. Oh, cool, gold. Yeah, we have a lot of that, he said. Not as much as Alibaba, she said. He has so much gold that he needs scales to count it. Alibaba, my brother, the woodcutter? She explained everything to her husband, who was, at first, intrigued by how his brother had come into such a fortune, but then envious. He had always prided himself that he was the success of the family, that he was better and smarter than his little brother. He was so troubled that his brother was not starving in abject poverty that he couldn't sleep. The next day, he took the gold coin and knocked on Alibaba's door. The smile faded from Alibaba's face when he saw the gold coin his brother was holding. Alibaba and his wife sat across the table from Kasem. They had already told his brother everything. He offered his brother half of the gold to stay quiet about the whole thing. Kasem only smiled. He would stay quiet, but only if Alibaba told him the location of the bandit's hideout. If Alibaba wasn't lying, there was enough in the cave for both of them to live like sultans for several lifetimes. Alibaba could keep whatever he could bring home. Kasem just wanted his portion of his brother's find. Alibaba told him the secrets of the cave, of the odd password and its location along the road. Kasem patted his little brother on the back, thanked him, and left. The fool, Kasem thought to himself, as he rushed home to prepare 10 mules with as many chests to take as much as he could from that cave. What did you tell him? Kasem's wife demanded of Ali Baba and his wife when they opened the door. They were surprised to see her face tear-streaked and panicked. Kasem had left that morning with a smile on his face. He told his wife he wasn't going to work. He would never have to work again. Ali Baba's stomach churned with anxiety. He knew his brother had gone to the cave, and if he still wasn't back, he feared the worst. The next day, he left with two donkeys to go to the cave. He found the spot 
tapped on the rock wall and took a deep breath. When Alibaba finally stopped vomiting from what he saw when he opened the door, he could start weeping for his brother. We'll talk about what Alibaba saw when he opened the cave right after this. You know that great idea you have? The one that you've been sitting on? The one everyone agrees is amazing, but now what? Time to get your idea out in the world with your own professional quality website, blog, or online store. That's why I want to share how easy it is to get started with Weebly. Okay, so I used to do a book blog. Surprise, I know. I stopped doing it a few years back and let the domain expire, and it was immediately snatched up by a stranger. I guess he thought I would buy it back or something, but I didn't, and the person sat on it for four years. But I noticed last weekend that it was available again, and so I decided to put my money where my mouth is and start the blog back up with Weebly. Turns out, it was super, super easy. I timed myself, and it took me just 3 minutes and 42 seconds to go from typing in Weebly.com to be working on my own website with my own domain name and email. There's absolutely no coding required. You can drag and drop all the different elements, and they have really nice looking themes for everything. Business, portfolios, online stores, formerly defunct book blogs, everything. So yeah, creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com slash myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. Oh, and I'll mention the name of the website in a couple of weeks when there's actual writing on there. Okay, back to the story. Kasem had been smart that day. He had ridden along the road five times, making sure that thieves weren't coming, before stopping at the mouth of the cave. He messed up the password a few times, but eventually he landed on open sesame, and the door opened. He was awed by the riches inside, and he entered the cave. He spent nearly an hour inside the cave, going through all the gold, jewels, rugs, silks, and other priceless artifacts that were assumed lost to the ages. In taking the gold, Alibaba might have taken the cheapest thing in here. He wouldn't make the same mistake. He whistled for his mules to come in. He needed to start loading them. He waited a few moments, but he didn't hear them coming. He climbed down from the walkway and out to the entrance, but was surprised to find that the door had come back down. Alibaba hadn't mentioned that. Oh well, he just needed to remember that stupid password. What was it? It was a type of grain. Open barley, no. Open rye. Open millet. Ah, open wheat. As he guessed grains, the correct phrase slipped farther and farther from his mind until it was lost forever. Kaysen began to worry, but maybe his brother would notice he was missing before the thieves came again. Unfortunately, a few hours later, a dust cloud grew on the horizon. The 40 thieves saw 10 mules milling around the door, each with a chest strapped to him. The thieves rushed to their cave as fast as they could and checked the chests when they got there. Empty. I like to think that the thieves, awash with relief that their belongings hadn't been stolen, maybe had a tinge of self-awareness. Probably not, though. Inside the cave, Kaysom was waiting, stewing in anxiety. He knew it was the thieves. He had his ear pressed to the rock, and he could hear them driving off his mules. He found an ornate sword in the cave. He knew he would die here, but he would die fighting. He heard the magic words on the other side. Sesame, of course. He shook nervously as the door opened, and though he was blinded by the light, he sprang out and slashed at the leader of the thieves. 
he got approximately two good slashes in before the 39 other thieves realized what was going on and brought their own sabers down on Kasem. His blood snaked down the dry road as his life left him. It never once occurred to the thieves that anyone could have been in their hideout. That time they also noticed the bags that Alibaba had taken and they decided to leave a warning for whomever might decide to pilfer from them in the future. They cut the body of Kasem into quarters and hung each piece in the entryway as a warning to anyone else who might try to enter their cave. The next day, that's what Alibaba saw. With a heavy hurt, he cut his brother down and loaded the body parts onto the packs on the donkeys. He briefly entered the woods and cut some wood to hide the body parts. Oh, and he also loaded a donkey down with gold because I guess he didn't want to waste a trip. There was a problem and Alibaba, his wife, and Kasem's widow all knew it. If they tried to bury the body that had been found in pieces, it would be the talk of the town, and it might draw the attention of the thieves, who probably had people in town. Alibaba's wife was tending to the gold, and Kasem's wife was catatonic with grief. It fell on Alibaba, but he had no idea what to do. That's when he thought of Morgana. She was the young slave girl in Kasem's house, and Kasem had spoken often of her cleverness. Well, Alibaba would put that cleverness to the test. The girl answered the door the next time Alibaba arrived at the house, and Alibaba walked inside. He told her that, first, I've heard great things about you. Second, the bags on the donkey outside contain the chopped up body of your former master. We need to give a proper burial to the whole body in two days. As in, it can't be in pieces, it needs to all be together. I'll leave it up to you to figure out how to do that. Thanks for handling this. Luckily, Morgiana was more clever than Alibaba had thought, and she already knew the solution. I'll need gold, she said. She had heard rumors that Alibaba had recently gotten rich. Oh, so you want to be paid? It's not for me, she said. Four should be more than enough. I'll return what I don't spend. Alibaba dug into his bag and counted out four gold pieces. The slave pocketed them. Now get him inside, she said, and on the table in his room. And make sure that the door is shut tight or else it'll smell. I will have all this solved tomorrow. Morgana smiled at the old cobbler, who was always early at his stall. The cobbler, named Baba Mustafa, looked up and smiled back. He resumed nailing the sole of a shoe. He stopped nailing when a gold piece dropped on his table. I have a job for you, Morgana said. No shoe is worth that, the cobbler said, stroking his wiry gray beard. He had never seen this girl before. Indeed, Morgana said. She explained that the job wasn't here, but somewhere else. Interested? The cobbler looked at the gold. It will be double. Morgana agreed to give him the other half when the job was done. He told her to let him know where to be, and he would do the job later that day. She said she was sorry, but he would need to be blindfolded and led there. The cobbler gasped. She wouldn't have him do anything against his conscience or honor, would she? So that's the game they were playing. Okay. Morgiana smiled again. She surreptitiously pressed another gold piece into his hand. Of course not. She wouldn't ask him to do anything contrary to his honor. Are you ready to go now? He nodded. She led him out, blindfolded him, and took him straight to the house. The cobbler was disgusted when he saw Kasem's corpse in four separate pieces. 
Morgiana saw him hesitate. You sew leather, right? Well, just think of this as wet, stinking leather. The cobbler steeled himself. He very much wanted that extra gold piece, so he agreed, and he began working. Slowly, he stitched the corpse back together until it looked as if Kaysen was merely a rotting corpse, not a rotting corpse in four separate pieces. Morgiana led him out blindfolded again, and less than a quarter mile from his stall, she pulled off the blindfold, gave him the gold piece, and thanked him for his work. He walked back to work curious as to who this young woman was, but she waited until he was out of sight before heading back home. She didn't need to be followed. Everyone in the village was shocked to learn of Kasim's illness and, the next day, of his fairly sudden death. The imam came and found his corpse perfumed and ready for burial, and, of course, in one piece, and Kasim was given a public funeral, as was befitting a man of his station. Ali Baba mournfully inherited his house and most of his possessions. I don't want to parse out inheritance laws in medieval Persia as to why the wife didn't get the house. As far as I can tell, though, the wife got a portion, and the husband's other heirs got a portion. Kasim's wife remained in the house, but Ali Baba and his wife also move in, and Morgana becomes Ali Baba's slave. Ali Baba's son started helping out running Kasim's shop, and for a while, things quieted down. Except that, in taking his brother's body down from the secret cavern, Ali Baba had inadvertently alerted the 40 thieves that someone else knew their secret. Seeing the severed ropes where Kasim had been hung, the thieves were worried. If someone else learned of this place, they could lose everything. They had to find whoever knew of this cave and silence him. They wouldn't want someone stealing their belongings. Seriously, who takes something that doesn't belong to them? The leader asked for volunteers. The only catch? For absolutely no reward. If you picked the wrong person or failed, you'd be killed by the leader. Why? Because bands of thieves are evil. Don't join bands of thieves. One thief piped up. He would love the chance to go into the nearby town and listen for talk of a man who had just been cut into pieces. There likely wasn't too many. Hopefully, right? Yeah. The leader thanked the volunteer and said he looked forward to the man's success or killing the man, however this ended up. Disguised as a traveler, the first man the thief saw when he entered the town was the old cobbler, Baba Mustafa, stitching a shoe. Making vaguely insulting small talk, he told Baba Mustafa that he was surprised the man could see so well to stitch a shoe, given his age. Baba Mustafa said, a shoe? This was nothing. Just a few weeks back, he stitched a body back together. The thief paused. Huh, that was a freebie. Wait, the thief said, does stitching a body back together actually require good eyesight? You know what? Never mind. Say, where did you happen to stitch a body back together? Baba Mustafa, remembering his payment from Morgana, said, oh, he doesn't know. The thief smirked and slid him a gold coin. Maybe Mr. Generic Medieval Persian King can jog your memory? Baba Mustafa picked up the coin and said he wished he could help, but really, he didn't know where it was. He was blindfolded and led there. The thief thought for a moment, and then he had an idea. For yet another gold piece, Baba Mustafa allowed himself to be blindfolded at the exact spot Morgana had led him. There, he retraced his footsteps as best he could, until, somehow, he actually found Kasim's old house and Alibaba's current house. 
The thief took the blindfold off and asked the cobbler if this was it. The cobbler said once again he didn't know. He was blindfolded. He doesn't know this neighborhood, but he'll take his gold piece. Thank you. The cobbler took it and walked off. The thief, very much betting big on an old cobbler being able to find a house blindfolded, made a small mark on the door with a piece of chalk. Later that afternoon, Morgiana was coming back from the market when she noticed, on the door, a white smudge. She was annoyed. She had just cleaned that door this morning. She went over, but before she wiped it away, she saw that it wasn't just some smudge. It was chalk. It was a small, distinct marking. Something was going on. Morgana didn't know what it was, but she had a bad feeling about it. Then, she had an idea. She rushed inside and grabbed some chalk of her own. And on three houses on either side, she made identical marks at identical places on the doors. She guessed, correctly, that someone was trying to locate the house. They wouldn't find it so easy as long as she was a slave here. That night, the thief captain and the thief who talked with Baba Mustafa had found the house, or houses. He didn't really know what was going on. The leader asked if he remembered the house. The thief said he honestly can't be expected to remember every house, or even a very specific singular house on which his life depends. The captain wasn't mad. He was disappointed that a thief could be so untrustworthy. He brought back the man's head to the camp, just outside of town, as a warning to the others. What follows is exactly the same thing, where another man volunteers, happens upon Baba Mustafa, who I guess was just really proud of his ability to sew bodies back together, and found a way to subtly weave it into every conversation. This time, instead of chalk, they chipped some stone away from the house. Morgana, again, saw the very specific and restrained vandalism and chipped stone from all the houses down the street. Again, thief led his leader there, and again, another one died. Finally, the bandit leader decided to just try to find the man who cut down Kasem's body himself. He chanced upon Baba Mustafa, who, I imagine at this point, was just telling everyone who passed by his stall that he stitched a dead body back together, after all the gold he made off leading people to the house. He led the bandit leader to the house as well, and the bandit leader just remembered the house. It was only one house, and it even had an address. I guess that's why he was the leader. He didn't know anything about the household inside, though. It could be one man living alone, or with guards. Besides, he would need time to really thank the man for stealing from him and removing the body. And he had to find out who else he told about the hideout. He devised a plan. The next day, an oil merchant drove up to Alibaba's house. With 38 large jars of oil, he knocked on the door of the house and told the slave that answered that his horse had just thrown a shoe in front of it. The slave went to go get Alibaba and the merchant asked him for help. Would Alibaba be able to lodge him for the night? He was trying to make it to the market to sell his oil in the morning. Alibaba, seeing that this man was a great oil merchant and Alibaba trying not to drive his late brother's business into the ground, would be happy to lodge the man and hey, Maybe they could work out a deal on the oil. Morgiana and the other slaves were responsible for wheeling the oil jars out back into Alibaba's spacious plot of land just behind his brother's old house. Morgiana noticed how one jar sloshed, but the others were just heavy. She began to suspect something. The merchant was pleasant, and even though his voice gave Alibaba a faint recollection of cowering hidden in a tree, they did reach a deal on the oil. The merchant requested a room looking out back, you know, to keep an eye on his investment, and the household went to bed. Once he was alone, 
the bandit leader threw off the expensive merchant's clothes and took out his knives. This fool, Alibaba, didn't have anyone here other than his wife, son, sister-in-law, and a handful of slaves. His thieves would have some fun with this house. And it looked like Alibaba lived simply. They might even get their gold back. The leader would wait a couple more hours for everyone to go to bed, and then he would throw pebbles out the back window, signaling his 37 men to come in. Morgana, after most of the others had gone to their rooms, was outside. The night was cold, but she couldn't shake the feeling that there was something wrong with these jars. She went to one and tapped it again. She was thinking, but then she heard, wait, is it time already? Should we come out? Instead of screaming, panicking, or hesitating, Morgana quickly said in her best imitation of the leader, no, it's not time yet, stay in there. Oh, okay, just let us know, she heard from inside the jar. Morgana stood there, wow, now that was a freebie. The pots, they all had men crammed into them, and honest men generally didn't sneak into sleeping households in pots. Alibaba had inadvertently let over 30 robbers into his house. Personally, I, Jason, would be out the gate so quickly. But Morgana was not only shockingly intelligent, but she was extremely loyal to Alibaba's family. She devised a plan. She looked at the pots. They were smallish. There couldn't be much room in there, especially not for full-grown men. Maybe only a few liters of extra space each. Hmm. She looked at the pot she knew was full of oil from the sloshing earlier that day. This might just work. After she dragged it inside, she lit the stove. She got the biggest iron pot they had and put it on the flame. About a half an hour later, she brought out the family's best, largest pitcher, in addition to wheeling a bowl of boiling oil out to the courtyard with her. There was another one heating up on the stove. She dipped the large pitcher in the oil, filling it to an almost unwieldy level. Going up to the first jar, she took three deep breaths and steeled herself for what she had to do. She cracked open the lid of the pot and poured the boiling oil inside. If there was a yelp, it was almost inaudible. The boiling oil came flowing out the top and Morgana burned a few of her fingers. There may not have been a scream from inside the jar, but there was a struggle. Morgana held the lid down as tightly as she could as the jar rocked violently back and forth until it became still. Morgana breathed for the first time in a minute. Okay, 36 left to go. Half of them were sleeping and never really woke up. A few almost tipped the jar over in their struggling. One went for nearly a minute before he finally succumbed to the boiling oil. The number of thieves slowly dwindled. Unaware that their friends and fellow thieves were dying silently and one by one all around them. As a quick aside, I tried to make this as believable as possible. In most artist depictions of this, Morgana just has like a pint of oil. I don't know how, one, you'd be able to do that without them screaming and waking up the other thieves, or two, how that would kill them. It'd just really badly burn them. There's a little bit of suspension of disbelief here. Okay, back to the story. The bandit leader listened at his door. That slave girl had finally gone to bed. Now there wouldn't be anyone to raise the alarm. He leaned out the window and showered the jars with pebbles. But, oddly enough, he didn't see his men. He threw another handful, and then another, but still, there was nothing. Since one can only bring so many handfuls of rocks into a stranger's house undetected, the now inaccurately named bandit leader stole outside to wake up his men. He kicked one of the jars, glancing nervously at the house, but the jar didn't open. He pulled the lid off, 
and instead of seeing one of his men sleeping peacefully, he saw what was left of their face suspended in warm oil. The hardened bandit leader, who had killed countless people and robbed even more, shrieked and screamed when he saw what happened to his thieves. He didn't look in the other ones. Not only does no one want to see that sort of thing ever, but he was shocked by how someone had killed all of his men right underneath his window without him realizing it. Given his shrieking and screaming, secrecy was right out, and he ran to the gate, kicked open the door, and ran out into the night, alone. Coming back from the bath the next morning, Alibaba noticed that, hmm, the lock out back was broken, and also the door frame and most of the door. He should fix that. He walked past the jars, noticing that the slaves had spilled some oil. He needed to talk to them about that too. He opened the door to see Morgiana waiting for him. Oh hey, the lock, Alibaba said. I know about the lock, Morgiana said. Go look into one of the jars. It's oil. Alibaba said. What's there to see? Is our guest up? He left early, Morgana said. Just go look in one of the jars. Puzzled, Alibaba could see that Morgana was serious and really, really tired for some reason. She insisted, so he went outside. By virtue of it being closest to the door, he picked the exact same jar the bandit leader had picked the night before, and he had virtually the same reaction. When he calmed down, he popped the lid off some of the other jars. All of them? Thieves, Morgana said. And you, she raised up her burned forearms, took care of it. Yes, I did. Alibaba hugged her, weeping on her neck. He thanked and thanked her, and she explained that the merchant wasn't really a merchant, but the leader of the thieves. She asked Alibaba if he knew of a reason why approximately 40 thieves would be after him. Nope, not at all. Anyway, she told him that the leader left in the night, presumably after finding his men in such a state. He kicked through the door in the outside wall and ran off. Alibaba thanked and thanked her. He didn't know how he could ever show this slave his appreciation. And then he paused. What was wrong with that sentence? He smiled and told Morgiana that she was now free. Morgiana gasped. She hadn't done all of this to win freedom. She didn't even know that was an option. She did it with the very modest hope of not being murdered by 37 bandits. Alibaba told her he just needed her help with one more thing. Like a medieval Persian Walter White and Jesse Pinkman, Alibaba and Morgiana buried the jars of their partially dissolved enemies out in the desert in secret. Over the following months, the people were surprised to find the roads were suddenly safe again for travelers, merchants. Even though Alibaba had lost his brother in all of this, it finally looked like it was over. He hired people to guard his house in the event that the bandit leader tried to return, but he didn't, and it was quiet. Alibaba handed over Kasem's business completely to his son, who was much better at running it than Alibaba. Sitting at the table with his wife, his sister-in-law, his son, and his son's business associate, Alibaba was happy it had all worked out in the end. Morgiana had even decided to stay on, not as a slave, but as a paid servant. She had been serving dinner, but offered to do an elaborate and skillful sword dance for the family and its guest. A sword dance is in multiple cultures, but it's in some places a mock battle, in others a type of military training, and still others just a dance where a sword was used as a prop. This was one where it was used as a prop. The sword, though not blunted, wasn't intended to ever be used. 
The family was then surprised when they saw the sword explode out of the chest of Alibaba's son's business associate, who gurgled and fell face down on the table, dead. Alibaba yelled for the guards to come in. There was a traitor in their house. But Morgana wordlessly pulled the sword out, and it fell, clanging to the floor. She wrenched the wig off the dead man and pulled him back from the table, opening up his robe to reveal a dagger on the inside, a dagger he was reaching for. The guards stopped. Alibaba and his family stopped. The whole room stopped, as Morgana explained that this was the bandit leader. She recognized his voice and the way he wanted his food prepared, since she had helped make it the last time. He had come to take vengeance for his men, and Morgana knew the only way she could keep him from killing all of them was the sword dance. Alibaba was awestruck. She had saved their household's lives and honor three times now. He had to show his appreciation. He loved and trusted her like a daughter. Hmm. He thought about it. Like a daughter, he stood up in front of his family and asked Morgana if she would do him the honor of marrying his son. Yes, he was offering his son's hand in marriage to her. The son started talking, but Alibaba interrupted him. The son, of course, was an adult and could do whatever he wanted, but if he valued his father's advice at all, he must marry this woman. Seriously, she's absolutely amazing. The son did value his father's advice, and he turned to Morgana, asking her if she would like to marry him. The slave turned freedwoman, turned servant, wasn't completely ambitious, but she knew a good opportunity when she saw it. She had risked her life to protect this family. She might as well join it. Alibaba's son was a kind man, too. Perhaps they would grow to love each other. She accepted. And they did grow to love each other. They had many children together, and they ran Kasem's business well. When Alibaba was old and nearing death, he took them to the cave and told them the secret phrase for opening it, revealing lifetimes worth of riches. The descendants of Alibaba, and then Morgiana, used the money judiciously and wisely. They were never greedy and lived in honor and splendor for generations, putting the ill-gotten gains to good use. This is a well-known story, one of the most famous from the collection titled 1001 Nights. But it wasn't actually in the first version. It was added much later, copied down by a Frenchman from a storyteller in modern-day Syria. There's some debate today as to whether the story of Alibaba is an authentic Middle Eastern folktale, a combination of the fact that no original manuscripts exist for the Alibaba story, and that the translator reportedly took some liberties with other stories, have fueled speculation over the years that it's either a creation of the translator or a European tale that was adapted by a storyteller in Syria. I read a pretty compelling academic article about the authorship of the story, and certain episodes of the story, like Morgiana marking the doors and killing the thieves, do fit with other stories told in similar regions around this time. I'm personally convinced that this is an authentic Middle Eastern folktale, but whatever it is, it's still a great story. Next week, there won't be an episode. With moving and closing on a house, it would be tough to get a quality show out. Plus, the episode coming up in a few weeks requires way more research than usual, so I needed a little extra time. In two weeks, though, we're going back to Greek mythology, and I'll be telling the story of Sisyphus, who actually had a long, sleazy life before he was condemned to roll a boulder up a hill, and of his grandson, Bellerophon, who, despite fighting the Chimera and riding Pegasus, just can't catch a break. I want to say thanks to Megan L., Cassandra W., Sunny H., Amber G., Stephen E., Delaney B., Mike D., Drew M., Ryan A., 
Matt P, Mick T, Mark B, Jennifer M, Emily L, Shiloh K, Autumn S, Joanna T, Josh W, Richard C, Jeremy K, Rebecca M, Steve E, Adrian F, Philip K, Jennifer I, Natasha R, and Walton D for becoming members on the site. Thank you all so much. This podcast wouldn't be where it is without you. And yes, there's also a membership thing on the site. For $5, less than the price of 30 Red Fire Ants on Amazon, you can get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that won't die in your porch if it's over 85 degrees out. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Nix, a freshwater mermaid from the folklore of Scandinavia, Germany, and Switzerland. It's either a beautiful mermaid or a beautiful centaurish man, both of which might try to lure people into the river with their wiles. There are ways to keep it from killing you. Give it gifts. Some vodka, of course, snuff, or most delicious and substantial of all, three drops of blood will get them to stay underwater. In most versions, they lure people to their dooms, like basically every water creature. But some will just sit near dangerous rocks, singing to people to lure them away from wrecking. So, sometimes they're nice, sometimes they're not. You're probably better off never following singing in the water, though. They both can transform. The men to an oddly specific bale of hay, or grass snake, and the woman into their true forms, a wizened little creature with green eyes, hair, and teeth. If you've listened to the Changeling Creature of the Week, they do that, and leave their little green babies in place of healthy human babies. They also like to go to the market, and can transform to look like almost the perfect likeness of a normal human, except for the dripping fringes of their garments. So, if you see someone at the supermarket with wet clothes, they are either a murderous German shapeshifter, or someone who got caught in a rainstorm likely story. You better confront them about stealing babies, just to be sure. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to other music I used are in the show notes. And today's episode was brought to you by Weebly. Like I said, it's super easy to get started. I did so in less than five minutes, and it's even less if you choose the free option. You can pick from great, professionally designed themes, and everything's drag and drop so you don't need to know how to code or anything. Creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot myths. Weebly.com myths. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 